We'll get started here this morning. Our topic, again, is we're on the series of Thinking Biblically, and this morning that we're going to be talking about Christian masculinity and defining what that means. So let's open a word of prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are extremely grateful that we can be here and have your word before us as our guide. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being able to um, hear your word and know that it's from the creator of the universe and your loving words to guide us and direct us. Thank you so much for this time. We ask that you would teach us men how to be more manly. Amen. So, I'd like to thank uh, Zach Jones um, for allowing me to take this picture of, of him from the back. But uh, um, what does it mean to be a man? How do you know when you become a man? We're going to kind of tackle this in the FOF format, so I'm going to need some feedback from everybody. How do you know when you're a man? I've gotten all kinds of um, answers, everything from, well, when you start getting hair on your armpits, you know, you become a man, you get muscles, and uh, you ask a child what he thinks, you know, and you'll get all kinds of answers. You go out into the public and you ask somebody or a crowd, you know, what does it mean to become a man? What does it mean to be a man? What is true masculinity? And you will get all kinds of answers. <clears throat> and uh, this quote by Dennis Rainey can be applied to more than just fatherhood. If a dad doesn't give his son a clear definition of manhood, the, wor- the world will. And the same thing applies to the church. Same thing applies to a country, a city, and any situation that if the, you know, the governing men don't have a clear, we don't have a clear definition of manhood. Somebody else or something else will dictate that. And it will rip apart a country. And we've seen, we're watching that happen right now as we speak with our own, our own culture. And we're seeing churches being ripped apart. We're seeing families ripped apart. Things are becoming blurred and the roles are becoming smeared. And we really don't know to the point where you get to choose what you want to be. So we don't, as believers, have those marching orders. And so this morning, we want to, from Scripture, begin to think biblically about what does it mean to be a man. Thank you, Zach, by the way. So appreciate that. Why have we lost our understanding of true masculinity? What has been some of the reasons? <clears throat> well, the first reason we can look at is our sinfulness has affected our concept of masculinity. And we've seen it happen from what? Genesis chapter 3 on. Jeremiah 17.9 says what? The heart is more deceitful and all else. And we know that down to the core, each of us is desperately sick. We have a wicked, wicked heart. And as Steve mentioned yes, last week, that throughout history, women really have not been treated well. If we look at the aspect and the confusion of masculinity, they've been treated from mild to just totally you know, abusive. And in, and in the Greek and Roman culture, um, most women were basically just good for childbearing, waiting on tables, and the discarding of them and the mistreatment of them has gone on for, for years and years and years and decades. And we've seen almost the opposite happen in our culture, right? Not the mistreatment of women, in a sense, as much as we've seen the mistreatment now of men and the tables, tables turning. We see the sinful effects um, even happen in other cultures. This is, um, this is the Vanuatu tribe, okay? And this is how you become a man for them. These aren't bungee cords. Those are actual vines. So in order to become a man in that tribe, the goal is to see if you can jump off your platform skim your head against the ground without dying. Then you've become a man. And in the Aztec world, when you became 17, what you had to do to become a man was to get a captive, bring him back, and then sacrifice him. 
And if you wanted to become an Eagle Scout in that environment, you had to get 20 guys, and they were sacrificed. And so you see the, un- the misunderstanding and sin just totally you know, causing havoc in not only our culture but others as well. We've also lost absolutes. Absolutes have definitely affected um, our understanding of masculinity. So what happens when you start taking away standards, when you take away the fact that there really is no belief system? What do we call that? What's happening in our culture? We call that relativism. Exactly. This leaves the individual up to make our own decisions. What's right or wrong is now based on personal preferences. And, you know, depending on our culture, our background, whatever, hey, whatever's right for me. Jamie and I were at a hotel a couple weeks ago, and we were just clipping through, and we stopped on the Oprah station, and it was interesting. It was a a spiritual hour of power or something like that, and Rob Bell was on there. And they were on the topic of um, homosexuality, which has a lot to do with the aspect of biblical masculinity. And so... It was interesting to see his answer as they were talking back and forth, and this is what he said. Everybody deserves to be happy, okay? And that's the the biblical reason why homosexuality is okay. God created us to be loved, and that is why. And so the problem with the Christian community is, and this is his quote, is they take their marching orders from manuscripts that are 2,000 years old. But good news, Oprah, we're catching up. The church is changing, and he's right. The church is changing, and so we see the fact that we are losing what biblical masculinity is, and our culture is now what turns and shapes how we think. That is now the standard because we've become a relativism kind of thinking community now. But there are several reasons why this kind of wisdom, you know, is not anywhere close to God's standards. Man's own ideas and desires, they're very often selfish and self-serving, Culture has historically followed the depravity of man. We've seen that. I don't think there's a culture alive today that hasn't slowly changed over time and gone down. We've seen it in our role models and our education system and its curriculum is being refined and rewritten by unsaved people influenced by the father of lies. So now each man must determine for himself what masculinity is without imposing his belief on anybody else. And we call this gender individualism. And we'll see ourselves moving towards that. But this shouldn't surprise us, right? Second Timothy, but realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossip without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Boy, does that not, you know, describe not only our world but our culture as well. Jay Packer said it this way, our decline. The truth is that because we have lost touch with God and his word, we have lost the secret both to community and our own identity. So the further that we've gotten away from God's word, the further away we get away from who God is. You can't worship what you don't know. And so what that does is that begins to cause havoc with who we are as individuals. You put us all together in one big nation, and what do you have? You have a culture that doesn't understand community, and it begins to fall apart. So what does Proverbs fourteen twelve say about what seems right to a man? Its end is what? Is death. Okay, isn't the converse true of that as well? You know, if what seems right and we listen to what God has to say, you know, the rebuilding can begin. And so there can be a, a changing. But that takes us to, um, you know, God's word is the only absolute you know, if a plane mechanic and mechanics decided not to use what their their owner's manual, we're going to start seeing planes fall out of the sky. If we see mechanics decide that they're going to use another form of uh, 
of instruction manuals, we're going to see, what, cars parked along the side of the road, right? They're going to be broken down. The same thing is true, is that when we leave our owner's manual, when we leave Scripture, when we walk away from the very thing that God has given us because this is what works. What works for an airplane is an airplane manual. What works for a car is a car manual. And what works for man and people and a society and a government and a church is God's word. And so it's important that we understand that. So we see that God's word is the only absolute. Without an absolute standard, the confusion about masculinity can only get worse. I went to Webster's Dictionary and found, at least far back as I could go, 1828. Here's a definition of masculinity. Having the qualities of a man, strong, robust, as a masculine body, resembling man, coarse, opposed to delicate or soft, as masculine features, brave, as opposed to masculine spirit of courage. In grammar, the masculine gender of words is that which expresses a male or something analogous to it, or it is gender appropriate to males. And then you fast forward to 2003. Here's the definition. Having qualities appropriate to or usually associated with a man in grammar, relating to or constituting the gender that originally includes the most words or numerical form or referring to males. What did I just read? You know, even Webster is confused about what masculinity is. You know, we must, in submission and obedience, align our thinking and actions with Scripture in order to understand and live out masculinity in the right way. It's for God's glory. Psalms 119 tells us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. John 17 says, you know, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Second Peter 1, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and excellence. And so God's word needs to be our complete um, source for understanding what our absolutes are. So let's get started in in the beginning of uh, defining um, basic characteristics of masculinity. What I want to do here is um, we're going to start kind of broad and talk about some broad characteristics of masculinity and then kind of squeeze our way in and kind of hone in on on manhood. So we're going to be firing out a bunch of definitions and a bunch of um, uh, practical ways in which we can define what masculinity is. Basic characteristics of masculinity. Man was created in God's image. A good application question might be, do we find our identity in, in, in God alone? Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This means that we as men find our identity in God rather than some kind of evolutionistic pot of goo or we evolved into some kind of animal. You know, God has created us to be what? Rational, creative, and relational beings. If we believe that if we follow our our DNA trail all the way back to some something, someone or whatever, you know, that just gives us rain and we can justify anything we want. But we were created in the image of God, and we need to find our identity in God and God alone. Secondly, man was created a worshiper. Are you dealing with the idols in your heart? You know, since we were created to worship, we're going to worship something, right? And it may not be God. Because man has given, was given a soul, he is by nature a religious being. John four twenty three says, But an hour is coming, and is now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Romans 1, a very familiar passage. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became foolish, and exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of incorruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so we have a natural bent to to worship. It's that God vacuum that we have, and we will put something in there. So we were created in man's image. Man was created to worship. And since the fall, man has been a sinner by nature. Man is not initially, was not initially created in this way, but was created with the ability to rationally choose. After Adam's initial sin, the choice to choose rebellion came with increasing ease. The sin nature passed down from Adam has blurred and blinded us from choosing that which is right in God's eyes. I mean, even our motives, if you peel them away like an onion, you'll find out that are tainted um, by sin. And there's absolutely no way that we can get away from the aspects of the fall. But uh, true masculinity says, I know I have a sinful flesh nature, but prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But it's a real man that understands that and says, I am not going to give up the fight until the last breath that I have. What else happened as a result from the curse of Adam and Eve? What happened? What other things happened? I'll give you a hint. The opposite of masculinity. What else happened? Good answer. Okay. All right. The woman would desire the man, right? Okay, so let's put on our BTI, uh, go back in your mind. Where in Scripture, take a quick Bible quiz, give me some examples in the Bible where men abdicated their male leadership role and that it produced disaster. Sarah and Abraham, that's probably one of the biggest ones. Just go to Israel right now and you can see the mess. Where else? Who else? I thought I heard Samson and Delilah. You're absolutely right. You're right. Jezebel and Ahaz, Athaliah. How about Deborah and Borak? You know, um, Borak said, I, you know, had the commandment to you know, go out and march against the army. He says, I'm not going to go. And she said, I'll go, but just know you're not going to, you know, not going to get the credit for it. So we see in Scripture when men advocate their male leadership, um, Bad things happen. But it is a struggle now, and it's part of our nature, right, as men? And that's part of the curse. We, we become passive in so many ways. Sometimes we as men just throw the gear shift in neutral and just let things coast. But masculinity calls us to be purposeful in what we do with our lives, especially when it comes to marriage and our family. Real men choose to take hold of leadership, leadership even when it's difficult and fearful. Real men have tattooed on the inside of their eyelids, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Also, we see that man is in need of God's saving grace. Are you totally dependent on God's grace? I'm reminded of a story... Uh, a couple years ago when, um, you know, I like to do things. I'm a do-it-yourself kind of a guy. And I thought, let me just cut my kid's hair. And so I went to eBay and I ordered one of those, you know, kits where you get the video, you get the instructions, they give you the clippers, the whole nine yards. And so I thought, I can do this. So it came in the mail and the three, my three sons, when we put the video in, I'm watching, I'm going, this is really boring, you know. I can do this. So we stopped like halfway through. So, you know, we rock, paper, scissors, and I think Caleb lost. So he's on the chair, and I'm, I'm going at it. And Joshua walks by, and he looks at Caleb and goes, Oh, Dad, you should have finished the rest of the video. <laughs> this is why butches were invented for the next three years. That was their haircut because of that. <laughs> oh. So often we as guys do the same thing. We feel that we can do this on our own without an instruction manual or proper training. There's a built-in self-sufficiency that is embodied deep within our sin nature. So for us to admit that is, is definitely opposed to what is in the heart of our, of our thinking. It's a real man, though, that acknowledges his need for a Savior to rescue him from an impending judgment. It's a real man that relinquishes his pride 
from being able to pay a debt that he could never, never pay, and that had to be with Christ and Christ alone. So do we find our identity in Christ alone? Are you dealing with the idols in your heart? Are you growing in your sanctification? Are you totally dependent on God's grace? Also, man was not created self-sufficient, but needing God and others. Are you involved in true fellowship with other men? It's obvious that because of sin, man's need for God, for forgiveness, for salvation. It's also obvious that God made us to need one another in statements like, it's not good for man to be alone, and I'll make him another helper. Where's John 15 say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me has much fruit. If you don't abide from me or apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. Just, uh, oh, I don't know how to go back, Gilbert, on this thing. But uh, anyways, what I did back on that, that previous slide is just got 72 quick random verses in Scripture that deal with the fact that we are to be together. They're supposed to be fellowship. We're not ships out on the sea you know, alone. Hebrews 10.24, we've all heard it many, many times. You know, let us consider how to stir up one another and not as the habit of some, but we are commanded to fellowship with one another. And the verses just go on and on and on and talk about not neglecting our meetings with each other, ironing, sharpening iron, bearing one another's burdens. Very key. And as men, we were created relational beings. Anytime a man chooses to go off and be on his own, more than likely he's isolated himself not only from others, he's isolating himself from God as well. Real men encourage each other to be real men. Real men encourage each other as we walk each other home. I can't tell you how many times over the years being in small groups with men that we have bore one another's burdens and we've saved marriages, we've saved... I mean, an encouragement to, to keep on. It is, it's been a rich, much needed, because that's the way God created us. All right. Not only were we created to be not self-sufficient but needing others, but man was created to be different from women. Can I get an amen out of that one? You know, man was created to be different from women. Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created. Deuteronomy 22. A man shall not wear women's clothing, nor shall a man put on women's clothing. For whoever does these things, it's an abomination to the Lord your God. 1 Corinthians 11. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair... It's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. The point here isn't to talk about men and women's fashions right now. Okay, The point is right here that there is to be a distinction. There's to be um, a difference, on, at least on the outward appearance, how <clears throat> men and women appear and look. And so... This this passage is so easy to deal with. I'm going to let you guys talk to Steve afterwards about how the correct interpretation of this one goes into. So, anyways, at this at this point, um, you know there there are extreme differences between men and women. I uh, turned the corner the other day. I'm going to put Nathaniel on the spot, and he was staring at a toilet. And he said, "He's just staring at us, Nathaniel. What what are you looking at?" Why is there an extra seat? It's such a waste. You know? And I said, well, you know, let's think about that. I mean, even, even the toilets all over the world scream that there are differences between men and women. And God has created those differences to, uh, to really complement in, in, his, in his design. But there are differences. I'm sure Seneva and Jason can talk about all the different... Where are you, Seneva and Jason? I thought I saw him here somewhere. The differences that biologically, um, emotionally, even cell structure, hormones, all that, women on the inside are made 
um, a lot like men, but there's a lot of differences as well. So the conclusion here, basically, is that masculinity is not a matter of the body. It's a matter of the mind. And these characteristics that we just went through are embedded and embraced in the heart of every man who wants to be a true man. I mean, we can go to the gym and work out and become buff like Chad here. Um, But the problem is, is that it's not on the outside. It's going to be what's on the inside as we begin to paint this picture of what true masculinity really is all about. So there's just six general characteristics of what it means to be a man. Let's kind of hone this down one step further, and let's go into some characteristics of the perfect man. Let's go through some characteristics that we find in in Christ. We see that Christ had an eternal mindset. He did the will of the Father. John 5.30, I do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He did the will of the Father. He was also filled with the Spirit. John 4, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Galilee, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding districts. He also gave the gospel to others. He wasn't here for himself. He was here for some key basic core reasons. And after John had been taken into custody, he came to Galilee preaching the gospel. That was what Christ did. And he also lived a holy and obedient life, Philippians 2. Being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 1 Peter 2, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So we see that the perfect man, Christ, had the masculine qualities of of having a mindset of eternity. There we go. Not only did he have an eternal mindset, but we have love and understanding. He sought to meet the needs of others. Matthew 4. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so we see the, the loving and understanding side of Christ that while he was doing his mission, while he was carrying out his purposes for being here in the will of the Father, you know, he didn't have to stop and heal and show understanding and love, but, but he did. He sacrificed self and his own desires. Philippians 2, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Also, he was gentle whenever possible. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we see that Christ had an eternal mindset, He showed love and understanding. He was gentle whenever possible. We also see the the rougher side of Christ as well. He had zeal, courage, and confidence. He led the disciples and others. And we see in in John chapter 6 that wherever Jesus went, there was what? People following him. You know, he didn't look around and there wasn't people there. He'd have to beg people to follow him. Yes, he chose the twelve. But Jesus was a true was a true leader, and he led the disciples and others. He showed initiative when he should have. In Mark 6, you see where he fed the 5,000. Now, if I walked up and I saw 5,000 people, and I had a box with a, a couple pieces of protein and some carbohydrates, I'm going to let my competitor take care of that one. This is definitely over, it's out of my pay grade. But he took a look, he saw the need, 
And there's any number of things that he could or couldn't have done, but he took initiative to care for and to take care of the 5,000 who were there. So Christ showed initiative. He also confronted when necessary, Matthew 23. How many times in the Gospels have we heard, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees? We see Jesus, what, turning over the tables and the money change. I would have liked to have seen that one to seeing what true righteous anger really looks like. But he definitely confronted whenever whenever the the need arised, he showed zeal, courage, and confidence. He was also decisive according to God's revealed will. So in Mark four, when Jesus is being tempted, what did he do? He knew exactly what to say. Every time that Satan came at him with a proposition, he just razor sharp answered him. He was very decisive. There was no thinking. There was no second guessing. He already had known what he was going to say. He was very decisive, especially when it came to that aspect. He was also conscientious. He fulfilled his responsibilities. I'm sure that as the Lord, you know, from the from the cradle to the grave, there was there was many things, you know, a checklist of things that God had, and He took care of every single one of those. And at the end, He says, "I glorify You on earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me." John seventeen and John nineteen. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, "It is mostly done." No, He said, "It is finished." And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Not only did he fulfill his responsibilities, but he was diligent. John 5, but he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. He never stopped plowing the field. He never put down the hammer. He was always, he was always on. Not only was he conscientious, but he was the epitome of, of of humility Christ was <clears throat> he served and listened to others in his leadership and we see in John 13 the Lord's Supper now here's the creator of the universe here's God and <clears throat> what does he do to his disciples he washes his feet Is that something that the creator of a universe or a king does? No. No, he was the the classic key, amazing example of what servant leadership is all about. That took humility to to do something like that. Took a lot of humility, and he was our example in that. John 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, Served, but to what? Serve and give his life a ransom for many. Oh, can you go back one more? I don't, can't find the reverse on this thing again. <clears throat> and also, another key component to humility, along with serving and listening to others, is he glorified another. John eight fifty. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges, Jesus answered. If I glorify glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And so it wasn't a matter of competition between he and the Father. It wasn't, well, I want to take control of this part here. It didn't matter who got the credit, right? Well, I guess it didn't matter who got the credit. And that's why he said, this is in a humble, this is not my doing. This is the Father's doing. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who gets the credit. Okay, so we took a look at some of the characteristics of Christ. We see that he had an eternal mindset. He had love and understanding. He had zeal courage and confidence he was conscientious and he was humble so let's kind of further kind of begin to 
move our target in a few notches, and let's talk about characteristics drawn from the qualities of male leadership, uh, male leadership in the church. Okay, these, are, these are taken from Timothy and Titus. And so, guys, as we kind of go through this list, um, maybe have a scale 1 through 10, you know, as we talk about each one of these. Or maybe just go pass or fail. Maybe maybe pass or fail might be another one. Write it down and then think about that later on. But a characteristic of a leader in the church, one who is masculine, one who is a man, is you are to be above reproach, blameless, irrebukable, without reproach, never caught doing wrong. You're a, a man with a good reputation. You're the husband of one wife, so you're morally pure. Sober-minded means you're, you're sober, you're clear-headed, you're watchful. Self-controlled, sound of mind, temperate, balanced in words and action. I love this one. Instant obedience to the initial promptings of God's Spirit. You know, are we self-controlled that we can hear that still small voice or we have in the back of our mind, we know what we should do. You know, um, I don't know about you, but mine, mine big one's chocolate cake. And uh, I knew, actually, um, Chris Mueller, who's going to be speaking at the Steadfast Conference, I remember hearing him say this over the years when I was in the college department at Grace. He used to eat chocolate cake, and he would leave the last bite just on the plate, and he wouldn't eat it, just so he could show himself that he had self-control. So I usually ate the last bite when he had done, but that, that, that has never, never left me. So self-controlled. Respectable is a good role model. Our, is the life that we have, guys, is it worth emulating? You know, is it worth somebody else going, I want to be like you? Hospitable. Are you unselfish and generous? Cheerfully sharing food, shelter, and spiritual refreshment with those whom God brings into our life. And so, when not only those in need, but do we open up our house? And are we unselfish? Do we want to help just be part of the body of Christ and be hospitable to our brothers and sisters? Gentle and meekness, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Gentleness is never self-important, but is considerate, courteous, and modest. Meekness is restraint coupled with strength and courage. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? He talks about a man who's trapped in sin. You who are spiritual are to restore such a one, right? So there's the meekness. You're actually entering into some conflict, right? You're taking some initiative at that point. It's not always comfortable at that point, but you know you have to do it whether you like it or not. But the gentleness, as Paul says, to do those things yet with gentleness, and that's how we are to restore. So we see that happening both in that verse in Galatians 6.1. He must manage his own household well. He must be a good father and husband, is faithful to lead spiritually, cares for and protects his children, oversees and fulfills the affairs of his house. He's a lover of good. He pursues godly activities. Well, there's some topics we could go into there. Um, he loves to hang out with virtuous men. He's upright, just, wise, discerning, non-prejudiced in the eyes of God. He's holy. He's disciplined, self-controlled. This is a tough one for all of us, probably. The Greek really means mastered from within. And that's really where everything else flows out, right? It comes from within, but we are to be disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word. He learns to uphold sound doctrine. He holds to it tightly. And that's what he uses to go out into the world. Must not be a drunkard, one who sits in hangs out with wine. He's not addicted to a substance. Not to be violent. Not to be quarrelsome. Not to be a lover of money, meaning he's not to be materialistic. He's not, not fond of it. Not fond of money. 
He's not arrogant or self-willed. In other words, he's not the kind of guy that's pushing his agenda, what he wants to do, his goals. He's not self-willed and not quick-tempered. He's void of anger. doesn't become sinful in the way that he becomes anger. So, pretty much basically up until this point, we can pretty much say that what we've talked about is traits that you have to have to be masculine, right? But all they all they do really apply to women as well. So this talk on masculinity also has some residual benefits for you as well. All these characteristics that we've talked about that um, are to be a part of our lives are, are the fruit of the spirit in so many many ways. And so, but now what we want to do is kind of leave those general characteristics and target them a little bit more about roles that uh, in which men must excel. Let's get a little more specific here. Role characteristics in which men need to excel. Men need to be a leader. Bottom line. When God placed man in the garden, he gave him specific instructions. What were they? Care for the garden? He was to oversee the garden, and he was to take charge of the garden. Now, even though God could have done a better job, right? You know, he gave Adam that responsibility. Not only the garden, but he gave him dominion over the animals as well. And he gave this task to Adam. Okay, catch this. Even before Eve ever came on the scene. Even before Eve ever came on the scene, Adam was charged with caring for, having dominion over, and ruling over what God has, has given him. You know, God, God didn't create Eve and say, Okay, Eve, I want you to take the nuts and the fruits. Adams, you get the vegetables and the proteins. You know, it's not 50-50. You know, he created women to be a what? A helper, Exactly. Eve was to be a helper. And she was to be the one who followed Adam's leadership. And later on in Scripture, you know, husbands are clearly instructed to be what? In their marriage. Leaders in their marriage. Where do we find that in Scripture? Ephesians chapter 5, exactly. Just trying to... some. BTI stuff here, making sure we're all on track. But husbands, love your wives, and wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so if we ever have any doubt and we wonder, you know, what our roles are, Ephesians 5, very, 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 very clear on those. We also see in the Old Testament that God gave leadership positions to the men, all right? Who did did, uh, God ask to lead the children of Israel? Who did God give the promise that um, there'd be a great nation that he would lead? You know, where in the Old Testament do you see when God called a man um, for a specific duty? It, it was a man. And in First Timothy and Titus, God gave all the positions of leadership to men. Same way. So it's obvious that God has given leadership to men. So to be a good leader, qualities to possess in order to be a leader, you have to have wisdom, initiative, decisiveness, humility, courage, and personal involvement. So as, as you reflect on that aspect of, of, of leadership, you think wisdom, initiative, decisiveness, humility, courage, personal involvement... You know, every one of us men is leading somebody, even if it's yourself. And God has called us to that. And I believe that every man in this room, including myself, has an extra gear that we're not using. And God is calling us to take hold of those areas in our life which which we're not. And we can always step up the aspect of our leadership. 
at creation, Adam and Eve was given to each other as mutual companions. So not only are we to be leaders, but we're to be lovers as well. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 3, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So qualities to possess in order to be a leader who loves, you must be giving, you must have gentleness, you must have consideration. I remember um, one time seeing my, my grandfather and grandmother in a car, and they were just talking. It was at church. And I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to just ask them a real quick question. So they rolled down the window, and I walked up there, and I said, can you tell me? what it is that has made your marriage so wonderful. You know, what, if you were to give me one bit of advice on marriage after you've been married for all these years, what would it be? So I'm expecting this big old long complicated explanation. And my grandfather looked at me and said, mm, just be courteous. My grandma said, yeah, I'd agree with that. Just be courteous of one another. You know, and in that word courteous, there was a lot more meaning to them besides just being courteous, opening the door and, you know, saying polite words. But I began to think about that. And there was gentleness, there was consideration in that, kindness, there was servanthood, there was self sacrificing. So qualities to possess in order to be a leader who loves. Also qualities to possess, to be a protector. A natural outworking of the roles of a leader and a lover is to be a protector, right? At the fall, Adam's job description probably had some aspect of protecting Eve, right? Especially from snakes, I would think from here on out. Second Thessalonians 3, God, he's committed to protecting us. First Corinthians 16, Men were to protect the faith. John 17, Christ protected his disciples. And in Acts 20, what leaders are to protect the body of Christ. So we see protection throughout Scripture as, as a male quality. So qualities to possess in order to be a manly protector takes courage, boldness, strength, and watchfulness. What does it mean to be watchfulness? I guess we could look at the opposite of watchfulness. It means you've just kind of checked out. You've thrown it in neutral. But we are to be watchful because we're really not in a Disneyland environment. We're really in a war, right? Um, sometimes we don't remember the fact that when we walk out those doors that the spiritual warfare is ramping, ramping up. So a protector... And then also a provider. The roles of being a leader and a lover also encompass the idea of being a provider. In Psalm 34 and in many other Psalms and throughout Scripture, we see God being the one that really provides all of our needs. I mean, he created dirt. Everything that you and I have on our backs, we live and we eat, it all comes from him anyways. And in Ephesians and 1 Timothy, husbands are specifically instructed to provide for the family. You see that in Ezekiel 34 and John 21. Leaders of God's people were always to provide for the women and the children and take care of them. So qualities to possess in order to be a manly provider. Diligence. Hard working. Be a hard worker. Does good work. Personal involvement. And, and servanthood. <clears throat> so... Role characteristics in which a man is a loser. All right? These are the qualities to possess in order to fail at truly being masculine. You need to fear man, have lots of self-pity, love pleasure. Now, I'm not bagging on golf, guys, but <clears throat> prideful, selfish, 
making work an idol, pursuing money, passions, success, and have a lack of trusting God and his truth. Sin will literally disassemble what it means to be a man. And we've seen the culture slowly shape what masculinity is. And it'll always be the thing that eats away at our God-given roles, at what God has called us to be. But true masculinity goes against these things, goes against the fear of man, goes against self-pity, doesn't love pleasure, fights like tenaciously against pride, is not lazy, not selfish, doesn't make anything an idol, it doesn't pursue those things that are not eternal. So, you've heard it said, a life, an unexamined life is a life not worth living, you know? I think that's really, really true in so many ways. Last night I was doing a little bit of homework and I came across this quote Steve Larson. Every man leaves a lasting influence that will affect future generations for centuries to come. But let's face it, not all legacies are the same. Some are productive, others are destructive. Some are illustrious, others are infamous. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? A spiritual legacy is one that money can't buy and taxes can't take away. It is passing down to the next generation what matters the most. And so remember this, that if you don't lead, men, those whom God has put in your care, if you don't lead and be the man and the male that God has called us to be in our families, in our church, in our city, in our state, and all is a cumulative. If we don't lead, somebody else or something else will. And may God help us all to become more men as the days go on, as we put God's word in our heart. And may it motivate us to take hold of those things that God wants in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the examples in Scripture. We're thankful, Father, especially for your example, not only to the Father, but to your disciples. We're grateful, Lord, that you left us an example of what it means to be a man. And we know, Lord, every man in here wants to be truly a godly man. And we know, Lord, that it's not what the outside um, looks like that makes us a man. It's the characters from within. It's the things that please you. It's the things that will impact those around us because we're being obedient. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, Lord, that we would take this to heart and our lives would be different. Thank you for this time. Amen.